It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And you're listening to episode 607 of Startups of the Rest of Us. Thanks so much for joining me again today. I am talking with Asia Aranjo, and we answer listener questions about overcoming plateaus, stealth launches, founder-driven sales, and all types of tasty goodness. And of course, we cover all these topics from that mindset of not needing to build a unicorn company in order to have an incredible life-changing outcome, and from the idea that we are seeking freedom, purpose, and relationships and looking to better our lives and the lives of those around us, rather than simply looking to go big or go home. We can build real businesses that solve real problems for real customers who pay us real money. And that's what Startups for the Rest of Us is all about. And with that, let's bring Asia on the show and dive into our first listener question. Asia Rangio, thanks for coming back on the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be back. I am excited to dig into some listener questions today. Our first one is a video question from Tom Cusack on customer onboarding videos. Hey, Rob, longtime listener. Keep up the good work with the podcast. My question to you is location of onboarding videos. Uh, I have an e-commerce marketplace that I've built in WordPress using WooCommerce, and I'm looking for vendors to come on board. So my question to you is, where's the best location to put the onboarding videos? Should I put them right at the front, at the top, where the menu is, right underneath where it says homepage and shopping and all the rest of the, the basic information up there? Or should I put them in the footer someplace and have them click on them there? My idea is to build an individual page for customer onboarding, keep it simple, a vendor registration, help them walk through the onboarding system that's already built in, and also the uh, vendor adding a product page, because that can be daunting for some people that are not technically capable of doing things. They're uh, challenged, let's say. So I'm just uh, looking for where, where would be the best place to do this? Again, keep up the good work and look forward to uh, hearing more on startups for the rest of us. Interesting question. Asia, you have thoughts on that? Yes. Okay. So when it comes to any kind of onboarding, usually the most successful kind of onboarding pop-ups or videos or what have you, there's really two things that I see work the absolute best. You either have like a complete overlay where there's uh, some kind of just like takeover uh, of the screen and it and it has like, I don't know, two, three, maybe four to five steps and that's it. Or you just have the pop-up with the video and any extra context. Um, if you have any extra steps for them to do after that, maybe you include that. But I definitely wouldn't recommend putting it in the like bottom right corner or anything like that. I wouldn't recommend hiding it. I would recommend offering it as something that people can can consume right there, whether you do like the full page takeover or just the pop-up. And of course, giving people the option, of course, to skip it just in case they just want to like get to it. But also, uh, if you do give the option to have people skip it, then that would be a good use case for tucking it away somewhere and just reminding people, hey, if you ever want to come back to this, here's where you can find it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't hide it right off the bat. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I feel like if someone skips it, as much as animations can be really cheesy, it's like if they say skip and you're able to like shrink it into a little question mark in the upper right, then it's like, oh, I know it's now behind that question mark that I can always click there to get back to it. I remember when we were originally designing Drip and designing the onboarding, Derek had a really good approach to it where when you first came to a page, let's say for your campaigns, which are like autoresponder sequences, it's a blank slate because there's nothing there. And so what he had was a view of the fully populated page, but it was blurred out and in the background, right? So you could kind of see what the page would look like if you had a bunch of campaigns. And then there was an overlay, just like you said, an overlay that had like create your first campaign or the video was right there. I think it was embedded next to it, or at least it was like an icon that was like, watch a help video, watch a tutorial or watch a, um, there was a better word for it, but it was like, watch how to do this, learn about this screen or something. And if you click that, then it played a video. And once you had a single campaign, then you didn't really need that anymore. It was still embedded. It was, there was a question mark in the upper right or lower, or lower right or something, but it was like a nice, elegant balance that the first time, and not even the first time you went there, it was until you created one, you always had that front and center. There was no better need for that real estate, we felt like. So I think that's an interesting approach too. Length of video also is interesting as well. We find that anything longer than a minute or like a minute and, and 30 seconds feels very long. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you have any perspective or strong opinions. <laughs> I feel the same way. They're like a marketing video, honestly. And if, if I'm in an app and I click play and, and the video is, I'm learning about one screen and it's a five and a half minute video, I'm like, ain't nobody got time for that. 90 seconds, maybe like two minutes is really pushing it. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for the question, Tom. I hope that was helpful. Next question is from Nick C. And he says, thanks so much for the podcast. It inspired me to actually try to start a business instead of just thinking about it. And now I'm in the mid stages of building an MVP. My question is, when bootstrapping, how do you scale a content business? That is a business that relies on human-generated content for scale. So it sounds like he's building more, almost like an agency of sorts. I guess content marketing SEO businesses are good examples of this. If you scale up your number of customers, then the amount of content you need to produce increases. How do you do this when bootstrapping? What if the resource, meaning the, probably the writer, right, the content producer you need, isn't full-time? It's more ad hoc or part-time. Where and how do you find that resource? My business is in a different space but rely on scaling human-generated content in a similar way. In the early days, I can fill these requirements myself, but what would you advise when it needs to be me plus N people to fill that demand? Asia, you run Demand Maven, which is an agency. And while it's not you know, content production necessarily, I know that the humans are a big part of what make your business successful. So how, how do you think about this question? Yeah. Okay. This is going to tap into all of your operational skills. So if you have a mind for ops and a mind for delivery, whether that's software delivery or service delivery, doesn't really matter, then this is going to be for you. Okay. So when we think about scale and things, of course, that don't scale and things that do ultimately scale, we know for a fact that things that scale are ultimately going to be processes, and in within processes, very clear requirements, very clear roles and responsibilities. So this is the human element of who do you need and what do they need to be doing and what is the process upon which that they actually follow to do the thing. Okay, so when we think about scaling, and this is actually true for really any team, but when we think about scaling, let's say it's content marketing specifically, Usually it starts with you doing it yourself. At some point, you have a sense for what are the units that you are trying to deliver. And if that's literally content articles or content pieces in some kind of way, 
you can kind of reverse engineer how long does that take and what do you like what are the requirements for you to actually do that work once you have a rough model of how long it takes you to do and keep in mind too if you are an expert if you're super advanced it is going to like you're going to take less time than maybe someone who's maybe less expert or less advanced but if you're not if you're maybe more average i would say then you'll have a pretty accurate picture for how long it takes you to deliver X units. Again, units can be whatever, but in this case, let's say articles. If it's you doing it at first, at some point, you'll probably hire someone who can take either either add extra units to how much you're producing together or take on your units that you are producing. And then your job is probably to go and then hire someone else to go and do the same thing. When you are, this kind of, this dips into hiring very quickly, but when you are hiring people, it's going to be pretty tough probably for them to accurately tell you, you know, how long does it take or, you know, what, like, how many units, so to speak, can you produce in so much amount of time? But for content marketing, most writers on average are going to be producing one to two articles every two to three weeks. Some writers are a lot faster and depending on their bandwidth and availability, they may be able to take on more volume. At some point though, once you get to about the three to four writer mark, that's when you can start thinking about potentially hiring a delivery success manager or someone basically to manage the writers. This could be a content marketing specialist. This could be more of like a project manager. It just really depends on the nature of the content, the nature of your market, and also how you're thinking about delivery and operations. This could also just be you for a while. Um, but when I think about how we have grown on the demand maven side, we have specialists who produce some desired outcome, some desired output. And then as we increase the amount of specialists that we have on the team, we also start to add in a management layer that could be like a client success manager, could also be more of like a marketing success manager. It just kind of depends on the project and how the team has grown so far. But that person is basically responsible for managing those specialists. One person can manage about five specialists or so, depending on the workload. Um, the tough part is actually hiring the second like manager. So that four to five specialists per manager, whoever, whatever that is, that's kind of where you like it gets tough is stepping into that extra place. But this is actually where you probably, from a business perspective, start looking at capital in some kind of way. Capital can, of course, just be getting a loan, but it could also be a line of credit, something that enables you to stretch without necessarily impacting your cash flow too much. This is also technically true, though, for software like SaaS. If we think about management in the more basic sense, CEO is probably going to be able to manage so many direct reports before they need to add in a management layer. So we see this often with flat organizations and then transforming those into more of a hierarchy from like a leadership perspective. So we kind of see the same thing actually in software companies. That's how I would think about it. The hardest chasms to cross are always going to be when you hire that first management layer and then when you stretch into the second and third management layers. So then you have a team of, let's say, 15 specialists, writers, what have you, and maybe actually not even that much, depending on how big you want to grow this business. But that's when you start adding in managers and leadership. And then your job really just becomes about making sure that people know what they're supposed to be doing. And then also that you are making sure that you're delivering high quality work. And yeah, of course, you know, all the other CEO stuff, marketing, closing deals, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, so that was a masterclass basically in how to build an agency. If, if anyone didn't notice, <laughs> you touched on so many good points there that came to mind when he asked this question. A lot of folks don't know that after you have about five or six direct reports, that's it. You don't want any more. And this is another case of that, right? Where your strategist or your product manager or project 
manager, client manager, whatever, whatever title they have, they can only have so much bandwidth. And so that's where from the start, you have to price this business. Keep that in mind as you build your client base, because if I can write an article and then hire someone to write a piece for 250 bucks and I'm selling them for 500 a piece and I deliver however many, you know, over the course of a month, I'm not building enough margin in for managers. There's going to be too many points of downtime where, oh, I need to pay this person's salary where we don't have a client, or I'm going to bring a manager in and to hire a good manager who actually takes it off your plate, they're going to be expensive. And so you need margin. And that's why agencies are often maybe more expensive than people think they should be. An agency is more expensive than a freelancer. And there's a reason because there's all these systems that have to be in place, you know, and there's a lot more humans involved than you might think. The other thing is what you just described is amazing if you're an operator. And that was the first sentence you said. It was like, this is all about operations. If you're that integrator person, this is your business. If you are like me and you don't want to do, like me personally, don't build an agency. You know, that doesn't sound fun. It's not in my zone of genius, right? Building these processes and getting all the humans involved. It's definitely, it's a different flavor for sure. But yeah, no, I I completely agree. (laughs) This week's sponsor is Kelsis. Kelsis provides engineering teams for startup success, and they stick with their clients for the long term. Kelsis has worked with clients through nine acquisitions, and every time their work has passed due diligence and security audits by big audit firms and public companies. Working with Kelsis starts with a half-hour walkthrough call where you tell them about your startup, and after that, they usually begin a three-week fixed-bid discovery project. Go to kelsis.com startup to schedule your walkthrough call. That's K-E-L sus.com slash startup. So one thing you mentioned that I want to dig into is you said a writer might be able to do one or two pieces every couple weeks, but is that like really long form stuff? Because when I think of a writer, I've worked with writers and they could do a couple pieces a week of maybe 2000 words. So this is yes and also quality. However, there are I know some writers that just whip them out. I think it really just depends on the writer. There's probably some average or standard, and it's just a matter of finding people who fit that average or standard that you're looking to to create or deliver against. I've seen everything from, you know, one piece takes three weeks to if the writer has more bandwidth, obviously they can produce a lot more faster. I think right now what we're seeing on average is about two articles a month from one person just given their bandwidth. But there's always, if you have someone who has more bandwidth and or is a faster writer, especially if they have to source the content, if they are operating off of like repackaging content, you can typically see a much faster turnaround. But if this is net new, high quality, maybe more intensely researched and created, then yeah, it might be closer to the two per month. There are some content marketers out there who would like pale at even that rate. So it just depends. <laughs> yeah. And Nick, thanks for asking the question. I would also recommend there's a course that Brian Castle put together. Brian has done a couple productized services and and scaled them up, you know, into tens of thousands uh, of revenue. And he built a course on how he did this is productizeandscale.com. And a lot of what he talks about in there is about exactly this problem. You know, there's the marketing aspect of it and there's the designing the offering, but then there is how do you fulfill if it's going to be human powered? And I think there's some some really good info in that course. Brian actually sold the productized course a few months back, but I know that you know that the, the material is still good. So thanks for the question, Nick. 
Hope that was helpful. Next question is from, it was actually from uh, David in MicroConf Connect a few weeks back. And I liked the question so much. It's pretty broad, but I, I like it because a lot of people encounter this. His question was, what is the best thing to do if revenue has plateaued? Am I doomed? And the first thing I said is, don't be so pessimistic. You're, ne- you're never doomed. But Asia, how do you think about revenue plateaus? What's your framework to get, get through them? Yeah, my first reaction to to the am I doomed was definitely, of course not. You are, if you are running a software company, you are running probably one of the most agile, reliable, uh, and resistant kinds of companies that there are. I think the only other thing I could think of that's more adaptable is going to be like being a freelancer. (laughs) But okay, so what to do when revenue plateaus? When we think about the why, the outcome, the thing that we ultimately have to do is take a few steps back and take a step back and look at the overall larger picture. So the first thing we're going to look at is, is the business performing? That is just from top to bottom business performance of, are we getting the traffic and or leads that we need? Are those converting into trials slash demos or whatever the model is? And then is that converting into paying customers? And then are we ultimately retaining those customers? If you've ever heard of pirate metrics, acquisition, uh, activation, retention, and then you know revenue and referral, that's kind of what we're going to look at first is, are we performing? If we are performing, then it really becomes a question of, okay, well, if the business is performing, then why are we not seeing the ultimate outcome of growth? Uh, But my guess is if growth has stalled, then there's probably something that's missing. We're probably not adding enough net new customers on top of the funnel uh, and or we're turning as much as we're gaining, which means that nothing is ultimately moving. The trickiest part is really identifying where to focus next. So in any strategic process, we now have to dig deep. So if we're not getting enough net new, well, why is that? If we're not retaining enough, why is that? So if we're turning a lot, where is that coming from? The next step is to usually whenever we see slow growth or like just very marginal, like 1% month over month or even less than that, usually it's because there's some disconnect with the product and the market. So we kind of have to, uh, I know it might, you know, scare you a little bit to be thinking, oh my gosh, do I have product market fit? Uh, But usually there's some disconnect. It's either that we're not attracting the right kinds of customers for our product or there's something missing from our product that our ideal customer really needs and wants, and now we need to address that. At the end of the day, people turn because they're not getting value, but it could also be that we're just attracting the wrong kinds of people. And this is, uh, as we start to identify where that's coming from, usually some kind of customer research, some kind of structured customer investigation is necessary in addition to some kind of market investigation, because it could very well be that another competitor is eating your lunch and you just have no idea about them and you got to go find out like what's going on. Could also be, however, that there's things product-wise that's missing. And then, of course, there's also other flags as well of maybe we're attracting the right customer, but we're not converting them as efficiently. This is kind of where we have to do some pretty intense deep diving. And a lot of times we find that a lot of businesses aren't really tracking the right things from the get-go or aren't reliably measuring anything to start with. So I would say if you've got a pretty good handle on analytics, attribution, et cetera, amazing, dive into that data. And then if not, then that might actually be the first place to start. All right. I, I was jotting down notes before this call and thinking like, oh, what and you pretty much touched on most of the things that I was going to say. So I think the one thing I'll add, and you touched on it a bit, but I want to call it out, is if you're plateauing early, if you're at 2K MRR, 4K MRR, 
it's what you said. You probably just don't have product market fit. Like you haven't built something people really want and are willing to pay for. That's usually the case under about, I would say, almost 10K MRR. If you're plateauing at 50K, 100K MRR, there's a couple questions to ask. It's like, is the market so small that we have literally tapped the whole thing out? Usually no, but you know, if, if you're catering to a very, very small niche, that, that's a possibility. You know? And then you have to think, do we add additional product lines to this to be able to charge more or do we you know, expand into other verticals or something? The other plateaus that I see in that later stage are folks that Churn can be an issue if it's a, like if it's an eight percent churn business, you just can't outrun that. You know, you need a massive, massive funnel to to grow beyond a few million because you just constantly churn them out. Having a price that's too low is often what I see is like you'll never get to a five million dollar business. Not never, right? But almost never. If it's like, well, my average revenue per account is ten dollars. It's like it's just too many. Pe- it's too many people, you know, and the, and the churn's going to be too high. And then lastly, I think. I'm surprised at how many folks don't understand how much traffic you need to drive in order to test an idea or in order to get that escape velocity. I will have folks say, hey, I'm at 1,000, 2,000 MRR and I plateaued. And I say, oh, how many uniques do you get to your site in a month? And they're a low-touch funnel, right? So it's all about traffic. And it's like, oh, like 800 uniques a month. And it's like, well, that like <laughs> you, you're not going to grow. It's just too small. Like get to 10,000 and then look at the rest of your funnel and see, are you converting? And it goes back to what you said. It's like you just have to look up and down the funnel, look at the rules of thumb, trial to paid conversion rate with a credit card up front should be between 40 and 60%. You know, it's like all this stuff that we talk about at, at MicroConfident on the podcast. And if you're outside of those bounds, it's usually, I can look at like six numbers and I'm sure you can too. It's like the traffic, conversion to trial, the trial to paid, the churn, that, you know, this and that. And you just look at these numbers and be like, yeah, that's your worst one. Like you just, you feel it, right? Because you've been around it long enough. So that's why I like that question because I feel like A, a lot of people run into it. B, the answer is it depends on the stage, but it, it is just kind of a framework, right? Of like, we, we know the SaaS metrics. This, I recorded a YouTube video a couple weeks ago. It's like the six SaaS KPIs you should pay attention to. And it's everything we just said. You know, it's the, the LTV and the churn and the, this and that. So thanks for that question, David. I hope that was helpful. Next question is from Marcel Albrecht about stealth launches. He says, hey, Rob, I've heard you mention the concept of a stealth launch a few times, and I'm curious, under what circumstances would you recommend a stealth launch? And I have a note here before I toss it to you. I'm not sure I've ever mentioned stealth launches on the podcast, so I think he's confusing me with someone else, but I figured, hey, it's the question, it's here, let's dig in. What are your thoughts on stealth launches, Asia? Oh, stealth launches are so interesting because I've only ever encountered a few of them in my in my work at Demand Maven. There's only been twice where I've ever worked with a founder, and this is out of like dozens and dozens and dozens of projects at this point, in addition to just meeting hundreds of founders. But there's only been two companies I've ever worked with before where they were in stealth mode. And the and the reasons why they decided stealth mode was they were banking on a very big idea. They were on the path to raise bukus of VC, which totally could be your vibe. Like, you know, not knocking that vibe at all. think it's a great vibe if that's for you. And then I think the third thing was, it's not that they were worried about competitors copying their idea as much as they they knew that they were on the brink of something potentially. Um, I mean, it's a very innovative thing. And they knew that they were just going to need they were going to have to dot their I's, cross their T's, get all their ducks in a row before they really went out and asked for the big bukus of dollars. So it was really like, we want to make sure we are very, very, very clear that this is going to work or it is not, at least to the best of our ability. Um, I did not work with this company, by the way, (laughs) but Superhuman actually comes to mind as a company that spent a long time in stealth mode. People did not really know about Superhuman until they had already been building the product for, I think, two to three years. And then on top of that, had 
hundreds, if not thousands of users, beta testers come through the product and try it out and kind of, you know, give up, give feedback and make it really clear where they needed to best innovate while also providing a ton of value. But some of the companies that I've worked with, yeah, those were like the three main triggers. The, the tough part is I would say nine times out of 10, most companies don't need to be in stealth mode. That's my opinion. But every now and again, there is an idea that just feels so wild and out there. I wish I could actually talk about these two companies, but they are still technically in stealth mode, so I can't. But they are just so wild and out there. And on top of that, the opportunity is so big that they would do their due diligence to be in stealth for a while. And stealth mode incorporates, and I just want to be clear when I say stealth mode, um, they are not publicly going to market. They probably... They probably don't even have a website, to be honest. They are likely taking on design partners or companies that can kind of help them co-build the product. Like they need customers, so to speak, but they almost like want these design partners to help give them enough feedback to help them build an even better product. And then also just kind of prove that this is going to be something that's going to be worth something. But the the long tail vision, though, is like 10 years out. Like it's not like two years. It's like 10. Like that's how big the vision is. But anyway, I digress. I'm curious, though, Rob, what your your thoughts are. <laughs> I mean, my thoughts probably kind of summarize yours, which is if you're going to raise Buku VC, then cons- maybe consider stealth mode. And if you're superhuman and you have tons of funding and can go build in a basement for two and a half, three years, and you know what you're doing, and you've already, because the founder had already, already done reportive and, and exited for you know, a great exit to LinkedIn, if you're in that case maybe think about it. Otherwise, I would say that you have a way bigger problem than stealth mode, someone stealing your idea. The problem is no one's going to give a crap when you launch. That is that is <laughs> right. 99 out of 100, right? So yeah, I, I don't know a B2B SaaS, aside from superhuman, but I don't know anybody else where stealth mode would make sense. Yeah. I mean, I start clamoring, you know, we were going to launch because we're just not, doing, we're not doing things that are that, that innovative, right? If, if you're launching something that needs stealth mode, this is probably the wrong podcast for you because this is about more boring businesses, right? This is about, I'm going to build an ESP that's better than, you know, the other ones on the market. It's not like it was some huge innovative thing. And guess what I did the moment we decided to do it? Well, I went out telling everybody, we're going to build this ESP. Here's my landing page. Enter your email. So, you know, we can build the launch. It's like, that's, I would go the exact opposite of stealth mode in almost every case, again, unless you have some very unique circumstances, you're very experienced, you have a lot of funding, you know, there's, there's some exceptions, but yeah, you can work full time on it and also maybe afford other people working full time on it, which is actually true for all of the companies that I worked with that were in stealth mode. But yeah, completely agree. Almost never, I think is the <laughs> phrase I would, I would use. <laughs> yeah. So with that, let's dive into our last question of the day. And I don't remember who asked this question, but it's in the Trello board, so we are going to answer it. Is it possible for a SaaS product to penetrate the enterprise without a dedicated sales force? Ooh. And I will go so far as to say, maybe not a full sales force, but what, you know, what if, if the sales force is in the early days, it's the founder, founder or founders? I love this question because it is spicy. Uh, okay. Do you have to have a fully scaled out sales team in the early days? Probably not. But I will say you are going to have to have some killer sales skills. You're going to have to have some really powerful sales and negotiation skills. And on top of that, you're going to have to be able to actually deliver against what you promise. The diligence process of bringing on enterprise is a giant pain in the in the early days. But you get to a place to where you grow enough where it's it's less painful, but still 
you know, somewhat annoying for certain types of industries and verticals. Again, early days, probably not. But at some point, you will look far more credible. And also at the same exact time, you will see better performance and results if you build out a uh, experienced sales team course within reason and also within budget. But I, I honestly would argue that if you can't afford relatively great talent here, then it might make sense to just wait until you can. Uh, but if you're selling enterprise, then in theory, you know, maybe a couple of deals and now you've got a team. <laughs> but yeah, early days, not necessarily, but you are going to have to be the best salesperson you can be. I want to be clear here too. There are some SaaS apps where they have their $50 price point and then their enterprise plan is $500 a month. That's that's not enterprise actually. Enterprise is like, like I think of it as like 30 grand a year up, 100 grand a year up. You know, I mean, that that's true enterprise. You're talking five to 30K of annual contract value. That To me, that's like more mid-market, right? That's not, you can, you can sometimes get through that without the uh, enormously painful procurement. And I'm in agreement with you as well. It's not that you need a sales force from day one, but you need a person who is a a great salesperson if you're going to sell into this space because selling to enterprise, you know what? And you need to charge enough. That's the big mistake I see, right? Is if, if my product is $50 a month and CVS comes and wants to use it in their dev, you know, their dev wing or Best Buy or Target or whatever, a Fortune 5000 company, they shouldn't be paying $300 a month. They should be paying $3,000 a month. You know, they're going to put you through the ringer procure and negotiations and the security audit and the custom redline terms of service and the invoices with POs with net, you know, all this stuff is such a headache. You have to get compensated for it. And so I usually say the moment I'm doing true enterprise sales, the minimum ACV I want is at least, and this is bottom end scrapey, is about 25K. It's like, and Anar, who's my tiny C co-founder, he's like, yeah, that's too low. I think it should be 30 or 35, you know. But it's like, we we have absolutely seen tiny C companies closing deals with these these big companies that are 60 to $100,000 a year. And these are SaaS companies that, that have $50 a month plans. But the bottom line is the enterprise will get more value out of it. And the, the just selling to them is so cumbersome that you do need to price it appropriately. Yeah. Completely agree. And I, in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, minimum 10K a month. But but yeah, no, I, I think it kind of sounds like it can actually even be a little bit less than that and still be considered like an enterprise sale, which I think is great. I don't know. Who knows? I, I think it's, <laughs> if you know, I'm kind of making it, I'm that's my interpretation. But for you, you know, in your world, like enterprise may be, that's 120K a year. That's like a perfectly reasonable amount to say. Maybe mid-market is is 10K A or whatever. It's 20K up to 120, you know, and then enterprise is 120. But it's just how we define it, right? I don't know that there's yeah, any There's no hard rule. Yeah. Bottom line is, yeah, if you're going to deal with larger customers like this, whether it's 20K a year or whether it's 120K a year, you are going to have to do high-touch sales and you are going to have to be good at it. And in fact, that is why all the the SaaS companies I launched, none of them required high-touch sales because that's not my gifting. My zone of Jesus is, is not in sales. It's in product, it's in marketing, it's in you know whatever, a little bit of branding, it's whatever else got drip and hit tail and frankly, microconf and tiny C. You know, those things don't require the enterprise sales. Although tiny C does, right? Because we have investors. So guess what I did? I have a business partner, Anar. <laughs> is the sales guy. I do, you know, I talk to investors. I'm, I hang out with them, but I don't close the deals because it just, it isn't where I am 
the best fit. And so whoever asked this question, or if you're thinking about this yourself, especially in the early days, if you're bootstrapping and, and maybe you don't have other founders, you do need to think about, do I want to build a, or I should build a business that at least leans into my giftings. And there are many ways to do it. You can build super low touch businesses if you're more in the marketing, left brain, thinking through funnels. But if you are better at sales, then go after business, you know, a business that uh, requires that. Yes, 100%. Totally agree. Awesome. Well, Asia, this is super fun today. Folks want to keep up with what you're doing. So demandmaven.io, which is your growth marketing consultancy for SaaS. And actually, your H1 is it's time to stop throwing growth tactics at the wall. I like that. And uh, <laughs> you, and then you are Asia Arangio on Twitter. That's O-R-A-N-G-I-O. And Asia, you have a podcast called In Demand that has been on hiatus for six, eight months and you're bringing it back. Tell us about it. Yes, I am bringing it back. Actually, it was because of uh, attending MicroConf and also a few other conferences, people mentioned it and they were like, hey, when is that coming back? And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was a thing people liked. <laughs> so yes, I am bringing it back this season. So we are on season three. We will be focusing on how to be a better CEO and then also how to work with marketing leadership and how to think about building your marketing team. So we've got a bunch of very big topics that we're going to break down. These are uh, just solo hosted by me. Just I'm kind of bringing together all of the research and insights and sharing them with all of you. And yeah, I'm super pumped to bring it back. It's it's a good time. I'm excited to listen. I've listened to the first episode. You have 18 episodes in your prior couple seasons. And uh, the H1 on that is how to grow your SaaS to 100K MRR. I like that value prop. So that's you can search in-demand podcasts, obviously, in any podcatcher you use. But the canonical URL is in-demand.castos.com. Thanks again for joining me, Asia. Awesome. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for joining me again this week. If you haven't checked out youtube.com slash microconf, in addition to conference talks that we've been putting out, I've been putting out some five to 10 minute videos covering SaaS specific topics and it's content that I'm not releasing on this podcast feed. So it's things like bootstrapping versus venture capital, what's the right call, how I made $30,000 a month with SaaS, top five activities of a great SaaS customer success manager. SaaS metrics, the best guide to software as a service KPIs. That kind of stuff that is pretty topical, tactical, and there's also some strategic thinking, but it's all around bootstrapping and mostly bootstrapping SaaS companies. So youtube.com slash microconf if you haven't already checked it out. And you can subscribe and it'll show up in your in your YouTube feed as these videos are released. We're trying to do one a week at this point. So if you're looking for kind of what feels like a little more startups for the rest of us, even though it's you know me solo. But you get to hear more of my thoughts on this topic and further your education in SaaS, all the while having an actual video that we, you know, we have editors that are making these things pop and, and making them interesting. So I'd encourage you to check out youtube.com slash microconf. And I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Mm -hmm.